Good morning. This morning's reading is from Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan Moser. It's my privilege to open the word uh, for you this morning, and I hope um, uh, we pray for God's blessing on this service. I know this text some, makes some people nervous. That was a particularly quiet reading of the word as you guys were listening, so uh, I don't, it might actually be hot in here, but I can't tell. So uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you've been with us uh, for the last couple months, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. And so just to bring you up to speed, if you haven't been with us, uh, what we've been talking about is really that Paul breaks this book down into two individual portions. Chapters 1 through 3, where he goes into the idea that before the world was even formed, before anything existed that now exists, before you were even a thought in your parents' mind, that God set his love on you. That while there was nothing but the omnipresence and perfect community of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, in that moment, he set his love on you. That that love marks your identity in Jesus Christ. That if you're a believer in Jesus, you have been given a new identity, a new life. That the Holy Spirit indwells you and empowers you. uh, That that he convicts of sin, that he encourages and comes alongside. That your identity is now in Jesus Christ. That what once marked you in sin and headed for destruction and under the condemnation of God has been crucified with Jesus Christ on the cross. That everything that made you what you were apart from Christ is now hanging on that tree. And that Jesus, through his resurrection, which we sang about so well this morning, gave us new life. So the first three chapters of this book are are given over to that idea of what is your identity? Who are you in Christ? And beginning in chapter 4, there was a shift with this verse. And this verse has really defined the remaining three chapters of the book when Paul wrote that we are then to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. That because we have a new identity, because we have a new life, our identity informs our conduct. 
that the gospel that transforms us and brings us from death to life is the same gospel that transforms our daily interactions, that it it transforms the way that we behave and the way that we live and the things that we value, if you were here with us last week. It changes the philosophy through which we view the world in which we live. And as we come into this text today, Paul gets more and more practical with his instruction. Because over the next couple of weeks, Paul is going to identify and talk about the effect that the gospel has on three primary relationships in your life. And those relationships are marriage, family, and work. How does the gospel begin to change not only your identity and who you are and the way you view yourself and the way you view this world, but practically, how does it begin to transform the way that you interact with the people that are closest to you and the people with whom you have daily contact? And what Paul wants us to see, and what I don't want to get lost in this morning, what Paul wants us to see is the beauty and the freedom that we find in these relationships if we're willing to view them through the lens of the gospel. If the gospel transforms your mindset, your perspective, and your worldview, how does it then change the way that you view these relationships And what Paul is going to say really in verse 32, but throughout the remaining chapter as well, is that all of these relationships are intended in one way or another to reflect reflect and mirror the love of Christ for the church. And he says it explicitly in verse 32 when he really gives us the, the, uh, the, the purpose behind marriage. He says in verse 32, this mystery, speaking of marriage, is profound. He's saying it's unique, it's set apart, it has a very specific intention and purpose behind it. And that intention is this, he is saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If you want to know what your marriage is all about, all you need to understand is that it is ultimately about Christ and the church. It is a reflection of Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. That Jesus' love for us is what creates and shapes our love for others. And without understanding that as the background, try as we might to work our way through a difficult text and apply the truths that are within it to our life. If we do not understand that our love is formed and guided by the love that Jesus Christ has for us, at the very best, we will make attempts at trying harder in our marriage. And we'll probably find in that frustration and disappointment and heartbreak and heartache. Or at worst, we'll just walk away. But if your love for others is shaped by Christ's love for you, then in that moment, your relationships begin to tell a story. Your very life and your very marriage begin to whisper the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that are around us. So how do we approach a passage like this? Well, first of all, we have to look back at what we talked about last week. And if you were here with us uh, during those verses, particularly verses 15 through 18, what we talked about is the idea that we are to be filled with the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, is to declare and make real the work of Jesus Christ in your life. So so the Holy Spirit takes the things that you know to be true. It takes your knowledge of the word of God. It takes the things that you have heard about the good news of the gospel and it begins to light them on fire in your life. It begins to make them real and practical. It makes them alive in your very soul. The Holy Spirit takes things you know and makes them alive and in doing so, he moves you from one form of relationship to another. 
So when the Holy Spirit grabs hold of your heart, he moves you, for instance, within the context of a marriage, from being brash and aggressive to being meek and gentle. And it's certainly not an overnight transformation, but the promise of Scripture is that as the gospel begins to work its way into your heart and therefore to work its way into your relationships, that it begins to transform all of those things. That in being loved by Jesus Christ, you are then set free to love like Jesus Christ. When you experience his love, you are now free to engage in it. And so within the context of marriage, you are now free to forgive because you have been forgiven. And you're free to love sacrificially because you've been loved sacrificially. That every interaction you have is affected by the gospel. And Paul specifically begins transitioning from, last, from what we talked about last week into what we'll talk about this week. In verse 21, where he says this. That we are to submit to one another, he's talking about within the context of the church as believers, submitting to one another out of reference, out of reverence rather, for Christ. And that's an important transition point because everything he's going to talk about after that moment is dependent on the idea that we are submitted ultimately to Christ. And we hear that word submission and there's all kinds of cultural baggage and there's all kinds of personal baggage that we bring into that word that we have associated with that word. Doubtless there are people here who've used that word abused in in very offensive ways in their own lives. But when we hear that word submission, we need to understand what it means. That submission to someone else does not inherently make you inferior nor does being the one who leads make you superior. I mean, Paul makes that abundantly clear in Ephesians chapter 2 and later in Galatians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 2 specifically, he talks about the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and he says that in the work of Jesus Christ, that dividing wall has been broken down, that there is no longer this stratified view of humanity, where some people inherently have more value or more worth than other people. In God's eyes, that view does not exist. In fact, it's inherently offensive to him because all people are created in his image. And he goes on to say that in Jesus, there is a quality of worth even as there is diversity of roles. And if you want to look for the perfect example of this, you can find it in Jesus himself. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which I'd encourage you to read later on your own time, what we're told is that Jesus, who is God, willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father. Now think about what that means. You have someone who is equal in value, equal in worth, equal in substance. And he submits himself to God the Father. And the instruction, therefore, for the believer is that we then also ought learn to submit And here's what I love about this text from a high view. What I love about it is that this passage uh, puts into proper context the way that we ought to view marriage. See, Paul's going to say that marriage is unique. In fact, it's it's unique from any other relationship in which we would engage in life. But what he's going to specifically say is that when you understand that your marriage is a reflection, a mirror to Christ's love for the church, it makes your marriage far more meaningful than you typically think of your marriage. But likewise, and on the reverse side of the coin, and I don't want you to miss this, particularly if you're in this room and you're single, realize that Paul is writing this as someone who is single. 
And Paul, in doing so, is reminding us that your, your identity in Christ is neither in being married nor in being single, but in being his beloved child. And often our tendency, both culturally and within the church, is to put such a heavy emphasis on marriage and such a, a heavy push towards marriage that we create a cultural pressure or expectation on singles. And do you understand, by the way, that Paul does not share that desire? That Paul says that marriage is inherently a good thing, it's a gift, it's something that God has given us for our development, for our growth in him, for companionship, it has all kinds of great intentions. But Paul in other passages is going to say, if you're single, consider the idea that maybe God would intend you to stay single so that you can serve in unique and different ways. And so having someone who knew what it was like to be single... And also through the Holy Spirit, inspiration is writing about marriage. It gives us a very unique perspective. It allows us to give marriage the proper weight that it deserves in our mindset and in our thinking. And this text is going to say that the picture of marriage, this picture that is given to us in marriage, has a specific way that husbands and wives ought to interact And so what we're going to read this morning is the most well-known, it's also the longest single passage that we find on marriage in the New Testament. And Paul, unsurprisingly, is going to define this relationship, this marriage relationship, by quoting from the Old Testament. In verse 31, here's what he says. And he's quoting, by the way, Genesis 2.24. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and look at these words, and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. If you have other translations of the Bible, it might say cleave to his wife, or it might say engage with his wife, but the idea behind this holding fast, cleaving, uniting, the idea behind all of that is covenant. Now, covenant is another word that doesn't carry a lot of weight or meaning in our modern culture. Uh, in fact, it's, it's largely forgotten outside of maybe some legal applications or church applications, but covenant is the idea of an exclusive, permanent, personal commitment. An exclusive, permanent, personal commitment. And the idea behind covenant is that when you enter into a covenant, particularly the covenant of marriage, You are promising, you are vowing that the good of the relationship takes precedence over the good of the individual. Now we could could not talk about anything else in this passage and we could just address that one idea and we could rightly spend an entire sermon on it. But for those of you that are married or for those of you that are considering marriage or maybe engaged, stop and consider the way that this changes your viewpoint of marriage. And by the way, if that definition of marriage makes you uncomfortable, it is probably an indication that somewhere your view of marriage is skewed. That the good of the relationship takes precedence over the good of the individual. That when you enter into the marriage covenant, you are not just declaring your love in that moment for the other person, but you are additionally promising future love. So Timothy Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I would highly recommend to you, said it this way. He said, the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant, commitment, a promise of future love. So I was thinking back yesterday to our wedding vows. So my wife and I have been married for 11 and a half years. Yes, I did the math right. Okay, all right, 11 and a half years. And, uh, and I, remember, I remember, like it was yesterday, standing uh, on the stage at my father-in-law's church as we were going through our vows, and I remember 
saying those words to my wife in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, in good times or in bad. I remember saying those words and I remember hearing those words. I remember the, the look in Jessica's eye and the tears that began to come down her face as she was saying those words back to me. It's one of the few things I remember about that day. It's just tattooed on my brain. And the truth of the matter is I meant every word that I said, but I had no idea what all was entailed in that promise. And 11 and a half years later with a couple of kids and having gone through some various difficulties in our lives, I understand a lot better and I expect that in another 30, 40 years, I'll understand better than I do now. But what makes covenant so inherently beautiful is that it is not dependent on the particular moment in which you find yourself. It is not dependent on the way that you feel. It is not dependent on the chemistry that you're experiencing. It is not dependent on the ease of circumstance, but it is something where you are promising a future love. And while that language is familiar conceptually to us, practically it's foreign. Because we live in a culture where the worldview is that marriage is essentially an accessory to your life. I mean, I hear the way people talk about marriage and I talk to folks who are single who don't know Jesus and I talk, about, talk to them about the relationships they have and what their, their viewpoint of marriage and it is amazing at the heart of it when you, uh, how much you realize that someone's view of marriage outside of Christ is completely self-centered. I don't want to change. I don't want my life to be affected. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I want my life to be enhanced. I want to be happier. I want to, I want to go farther in my career. I want to have a good companion. I want, I want, I want, I want. See, covenant goes against every impulse of our culture. See, marriage is not simply an addendum to who you are. It's not just about being someone who can enhance your life or provide companionship or romance and passion. It is not primarily dependent on chemistry. But to some extent, our culture has figured out that the very thing it's chasing, it cannot have. And it's why divorce has become so commonplace in our culture. It's why it's regularly accepted as a viable alternative if things are going poorly or if things are rocky. It's why fewer people, particularly younger generations, starting with my generation, the millennials, it's why fewer people as a percentage are getting married to begin with. Because who needs the headache? Who needs the inconvenience? It's not surprising that the world would have that perspective. And I don't even mean to say any of that in a judgmental sense. Outside of Christ, why would anybody have this perspective? But what's heartbreaking is how often Christians view their marriage the same way. And what God is saying is the very thing that many Christian couples are missing. That there is something infinitely more beautiful and more captivating than fleeting passion, and that is covenant. Paul is going to show us how a gospel-centered marriage effectively accounts for the distinctions between husbands and wives. In other words, he's going to explain to us how is it that people who are so inherently different, who are wired in different ways, who interact in different ways, who have different values, how is it that these people can actually engage in a way that is meaningful and powerful in its testimony. And of course, the answer is covenant. Why is that then so much more attractive than mere fleeting passion? Because passion is built on something that is inherently going to change. 
Initial sexual attraction, physical attraction, finding something beautiful, those are all things that fade with time. They're all things that drift away with time. And if that is the only thing your relationship is built upon, you will find yourself lacking. But if you are united one to another in covenant with this understanding that before God we are committing ourselves to our betterment where we are all about the benefit of this relationship, not just the benefit of the individual, then there is something real and meaningful and lasting. It's the kind of thing that allows couples to work through difficulties and to work through hardships. And so as we dive into verse 22, what we're going to see is that the Bible recognizes the distinction It recognizes that men and women, broadly speaking, have very different views and outlooks on life and on relationship. The Bible recognizes those differences. The Bible's not scared of those differences or those distinctions. But what the Bible is going to say is that we were created with distinct strengths and needs. And so Paul here is going to give us different instructions that are necessary to account for the way that we're wired and to account for our God-ordained roles. And look how he begins in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Should we go further? Everybody comfortable? My invitation to you is going to be whatever's going through your mind, whatever the what ifs or the yeah buts are that are running through your head, would you just put them aside for a moment because this text is going to begin to explain itself. And so we just want to rely on those things. So try not to be thrown off by what he just said, but actually consider it because here's the truth of what he's saying. What he's saying is, wives, let your husbands be the head. Now, even as we say that culturally, it's shocking to us because no matter what kind of environment you grew up in, there's something about that culturally that kind of just makes us brace for whatever's coming next. But Paul, in no uncertain terms, is saying, wives, let your husbands be the head, that husbands ought to be leading their homes. And we're going to talk about that in a moment, but leading their homes in a manner that is worthy of their calling, to quote chapter 4, verse 1. And whatever else this means, and there are all kinds of applications, and we can have all kinds of conversations about the particularities of it, but I don't want to lose the forest for the trees this morning. Whatever else this means, what it means is that if a couple finds themselves in a place where there is not consensus, where there is not agreement on how they should proceed or how they should move forward, what this passage is saying is, wives, let your husbands have the final say. Now again, immediately scenarios and objections come to the surface, but watch how the Bible immediately reigns this in. Because there is a beautiful symbiosis that happens in the very next verse. And here's what Paul says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, all of those objections, all of those things that rise up within us, all of those things that begin to churn in our soul when we hear the instruction to submit, Paul is going to begin to try to put all of those things to rest in the very next verse because what he's saying is the husband does not have carte blanche to do whatever he wants to do or whatever feels good because husbands, this isn't about you. In the same way that wives, this isn't about you. But what he's going to go on to say is that the husband's responsibility is always to put the needs and the best interest of his wife ahead of his own. 
and look at the incredible standard that God places on husbands in this moment. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here's the standard for those of you that are husbands or for those of you that will eventually be husbands. The standard for you, the standard expectation that Paul is going to place on your life is that your love for your wife is so deep and so intense and so sacrificial that you are willing to put aside your own preferences and your own opinions and that your love is going to be marked by sacrifice. That as husbands, you ought to be looking for opportunities to lay yourself down for the preferences and the needs of your wife. So let me use an illustration that is far from perfect, okay? So you finish church today and you decide, okay, we're gonna go out and grab lunch somewhere and you wanna go have Mexican and your wife wants to go have Italian. So how does this play out, right? Well, you know, honey, the Bible does say that you are to submit in everything, right? Anybody dumb enough to say that to their wife? And the response rightly comes back, but honey, you're to love me as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And choosing a restaurant is far short of that. Right? It's that idea. And obviously, it's a silly example. When we get into the real difficult things of life, an illustration like that is not quite as clear cut. But the idea is this, that as husbands, we are looking for opportunities to lay ourselves down. So years ago, I heard it stated this way, and this has been something that's been so helpful for me to think about as a husband. I heard a pastor say, he he said, you know, my wife and I are are redesigning our house and we're doing a bunch of renovations and all these different things. And so she'll come to me and say, these are the curtains that I really want. What do you think? And even though they're not the curtains that I want, I'm going to decide in that moment to lay my preference down for her. And in the moment where she comes and she wants to do this thing or that thing or the other thing, I'm going to, as best as I am able in those circumstances, I'm going to lay myself down for her. And he said, why am I doing that? And here's what he said, and I thought it was so helpful. He said, because in the moment where we have a real disagreement, and in my mind, I want to make a decision that I know will be beneficial for her, I want to have the trust of my wife. I want her to have seen that I am always willing to lay myself down for her, so that in a moment of difficulty, I have credibility, so that she knows she can trust me. So practically, husbands, and begin to think through the applications in your own life. I mean, what are the ways that you can serve and care for your wife and be ferociously devoted to her joy and her delight? Because headship, which is biblical and which is clearly instructed in this passage, is never meant to be used for self-interest. But what it means is that if if there is no consensus, the husband ought to have the final say to make the decision that is best for the relationship and the best ultimately for his wife. See, this is how a husband submits to God in marriage. He submits not by abdicating his leadership and not by walking away from the responsibilities that God has given him. He doesn't honor God by abandoning the very responsibility that God gave him. But rather, he respects and submits to God by refusing to do what is convenient and selfish, choosing instead to do what is hard and to lead his family in love. And just to be clear, also, wives, understand that this passage is not calling you to submit to all men. 
Right? So depending on your background, you may have grown up in that kind of environment where women are second-class citizens and their opinion doesn't really matter and men are up here and women keep silent and all those sorts of things. That's not the instruction of this passage. This passage is not calling you to be a Stepford wife, to be unthinking. What it's saying is submit to your husband as, to the, as the church submits to Christ, which means that ultimately your submission is to Christ. So this isn't meant to lead you into some scenario where you are to violate Christ's authority or violate scripture itself in the process of submitting to your husband. That's not what we're talking about. But it's possible as well, wives, to submit in a way that's not biblical. And here's what I mean by that. I read something again from Timothy Keller who uh, in his book, Meaning of Marriage, addresses this idea. And he says, you know, you can evaluate, you can begin to understand what submission is and what submission is selfless and what submission is is non-biblical if in a time when you need to confront your husband, you don't because you value peace over speaking the truth. See, from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter two, when God declared upon looking at Adam that it was not good that he was alone, in that very moment, the Bible says that God created a helpmeet. And a helpmeet is literally one who comes alongside So for those of you who are married, you ought to be one another's greatest advisors, the most trusted confidant, the biggest cheerleaders that you have for one another. And what's so beautiful about all of this is that in the goodness and the wisdom of God, the Bible did not bend to the harsh patriarchal era in which it was written. I mean, as antiquated and as foreign as verse 22 feels to us in a modern culture, understand that it would have felt infinitely more so to the men in verse 25 in this culture. Because the original audience would have read this and said, of course women submit. That's not even a question. But the idea of loving my wife as Christ loved the church, wait a minute, you're saying I have to sacrifice something? You're saying this isn't about me? See, the beauty of the Bible is that it is not bound by time and it's not bound by our cultures and it's not bound by our limited understanding. The beauty of Scripture is that it was written and inspired in a way where God knew it would be read not only by its original audience but by audiences in the future. And not only does it not bend to that ancient culture, but it also does not bend to our culture. The Bible The Bible does not ignore distinctions between the genders. It recognizes them as good gifts of God in ways that he has made us complementary, that we work together, that these pieces fit. And in the same sense, the Bible gives us all sorts of freedom for the way that these things are applied within the context of our lives because the Bible is not trying to establish a social culture or a political culture. It's talking about the right relationships between husbands and wives, which is the basis of all culture. So God's not going to allow us to dispense with male headship. He's not going to allow us to abdicate our responsibility, men, to lead our homes. But he's also going to give us tremendous freedom in the particularities of how these things play out in our lives, in our times, and in our culture. And what's even more incredible is that the instruction for men does not end there. So if you've heard this preached before, that this, that this passage has more to say to men than it does to women, that's because that's true. 
Look what he says. Love your wife as Jesus loved the church. Verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here's what he's saying. Husbands, your sacrificial love has a sanctifying effect in the life of your wife. That when you love your wife the way that Jesus loves the church and the way that Jesus loves her, it's like you're taking her hand and you are gently walking her towards Christ. That through your interaction, she should walk away thinking, that's the way that Jesus loves me. That kind of sacrifice, that kind of willingness to lead rightly, that kind of selfless love, that kind of love that I just saw in my husband, that's, that's a picture of what Christ looks like. And I'll be honest with you, as I thought about this this week, th- this was the thing that was just burdening my own heart. Where I realized my own shortcomings as a husband. Consider in your own heart the way that these words apply to your life. Is that the picture you are presenting not only to your wife, husbands, but also to this world? that by interacting with you and by experiencing your love, that she has a greater, to de- a greater desire to be more like Jesus. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives, like what? As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now notice what he said. He doesn't just say, love your wife like you love your own body. He says, love your wife because she's your own body. Look at verse 31. And the two shall become one flesh. That when you are joined together in covenantal, committed marriage union... That there is a unique relationship that happens there where you become one. That there is a spiritual connection, a physical connection, an emotional unity that comes through the the context of marriage. And scripture is going to go on to say that marriage is not just something that's recognized by the state. It's not just something that's even recognized by the church, though that instruction is in there. But ultimately, marriage is something that is recognized by God himself. That in the moment when you vowed together and on this earth, your marriage was sealed in heaven. Think about that. Think about the implications of that. And look for those words of, of like or as. They are peppered throughout this passage. Go back and look at them later. Verse 22, 24, 25, 29, 33. He's saying all of these interactions are to be marked in the same way that Christ loves you that you are to love your wife, love your husband, as Christ loves the church, as the church loves Christ. Apply the gospel to your marriage. And the point is not just do the right thing, but it's to do it in a way that brings the light of the gospel to bear. Look at verse 32. Verse 32. This mystery is profound, speaking of marriage, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And here's ultimately what he's saying. He's saying, look, marriage is a shadow. And the reality behind that shadow is the person of Jesus Christ pursuing and loving his bride, the church. 
and the church lovingly submitting to his good and generous and loving leadership. So here's what I want you to walk away thinking. Unless you understand that your marriage is about God, you will turn your marriage into a God. I'm going to repeat that again. Unless you understand that your marriage is about God, you will turn your marriage into a God. And without understanding that, you will not be married well, and also you will not be single well. I mean, think about this. If you're married and God is not your everything, if he is not your first and primary love, then what you will inevitably do is put the expectations and the burdens that only God himself can bear and you will place them on your partner for fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness and affirmation and all of the things that God alone can promise and deliver. You will begin to apply those things to your spouse. And when that person cannot perform and cannot provide what you are looking for, you will be left heartbroken. But additionally, if you don't understand the truth that marriage is ultimately about God, you will not be single well. Because you will either desire marriage too much, where you're thinking that somehow your life is incomplete without marriage or somehow your life is invalidated because you're married or somehow you are a lesser person because you're not married. And you will miss the beautiful picture that Christ is your everything. That if you never marry in this life, God is still more than enough. Or you will under-desire these things. Maybe you've been jaded or hurt. Maybe you've seen bad experiences. Maybe mom and dad got divorced. Maybe you swore off relationships altogether. You never want to be committed that way. You never want to be tied down that way. And for you, maybe the call is you need to revamp your whole view of what marriage is because you, you put so much on it that now you don't even want it. See, the unusual truth is that if you love your spouse more than you love God, you will not love your spouse as well as you're able but if you love God more than your spouse, you will love your spouse well. And the only way that we can understand these things is to see Jesus as that ultimate spouse. To see him on the cross, giving himself for us, nurturing us, sanctifying us, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all we could have hoped for or all we could have asked for or all we could have desired. And if you don't see that, you need to look to the cross. Because the cross is the ultimate, the ultimate picture of marital love. Because on the cross, as Jesus is suffering and dying for your sins, as he's taking the brutality onto his own body, he is doing that, looking out at a bride who has been unfaithful. He is looking out at people who have rejected him and abandoned him and sinned against him and violated him. And he stayed on the cross. When life was most brutal, he didn't walk away. And in that faithfulness, we have the ultimate picture of both submission and love. Jesus could have called down angels from heaven to deliver him in that moment. Instead, he willingly submits to the will of the Father. 
Or Jesus could have walked away. These people don't deserve my love. But he continued to demonstrate it. First to bring us life. And then to bring us this picture of the beauty and the intensity of marriage. My prayer is that our hearts for those that are single and for those that are married, in understanding the beauty of the picture of marriage itself, that our hearts and our lives would be utterly transformed. That we would be marked by sacrifice and humility, by love and forgiveness, by an intense respect and desire. And that in that horizontal relationship, we would reflect the vertical relationship that we've received that as God's love overwhelms our heart, it cannot help but overflow into our relationships. Would that be our desire together? Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for difficult texts. And God, we, you know that we didn't have time to get into every detail, and I'm sure there are questions swirling, but God, my prayer for us and our prayer for us as a church is that we would walk away thinking about the beauty of this picture, not because this picture is the ultimate goal, but because of what the beauty of marriage represents. The sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. The humility and the submission of Jesus Christ. And so God, help us work through the particularities of that in our relationships and our homes, that our marriages would reflect well what you intended them to reflect. And so we'll give you all the praise and the glory for it. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit the Lord of our salvation.